0: I.V.M. Today marks 63 years since the States Reorganization Act came into force in 1956, and many Indian states as we know them took their shape today. How far have states come in these 63 years, and how must states think about what they should aim for in the next few decades? Pranay Kotasthane returns to the Pragati podcast to talk about the future of India's states. Welcome to the Pragati Podcast, a weekly talk show on public policy, economics, and international relations. I'm your host, Pawan Srinath. Pranay needs little introduction to the listeners of the Pragati Podcast. He's been here on the show often to talk about everything from taxation and fiscal federalism to the changing world order. We'll start our conversation with Pranay after a short
1: break. Hey everybody, welcome to another awesome week on the IVM Podcast Network. If you are not following us on social media, please make sure you do. And why aren't you following us? I've been asking you for almost a year now to follow us. Please do follow us. One of the things that I do ask you guys to do every so often is if you hear something you like, take a screenshot, tag us on social media. As I mentioned, we're IVM Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. So this week, our Tamil podcast, Ponnay Selvan is going to complete 100 episodes this Wednesday. Make sure you tune in for that. On the scene and the unseen, Amit is joined by Ira Mukhoti, author and historian. They focus on women of the Mughal era and discover a complex world where women are major players jostling for power. On the paperback podcast, Racheta and Satyajit are joined by the co-founder of The Curious Reader, Devanchi Jain. They discuss how books like 4-Hour Work Week can motivate one to be more productive in life. Here's what's happening on our policy shows. On States of Anarchy, Hamsani is joined by Ritika to discuss different connectivity projects and their geopolitics. On Noya Kanun, Amber talks about the Criminal Amendment Act 2013 and highlights the sections for the prevention of sexual harassment in India. On the Pragati podcast, Pavan is in the guest seat as he talks to Anupam Manur. They discuss how penicillin was discovered and tracks how drug discovery and development has evolved since then. On Ganatantra, hosts Alokesh Sharyu are joined by Rajni Sorin, an advocate activist who works in issues related to forest rights and practices in the Chhattisgarh High Court to talk about how the Adivasi movement has used the law and political institutions to protect their rights. On Feeding 10 Billion, hosts Varun and Ramya are joined by Dr. Ganesh Baglar, a pioneer of computational gastronomy, who talks to them about the potential of data to understand the food we eat and even the possibilities of creating recipes through it. Here are a few podcasts that will motivate you this week. On the Empowering Series, host Dharina Punawala is joined by Neelam Kumar. She's a best-selling author, adversity coach, and cancer crusader. Neelam talks about how she defeated cancer and the myths and stigma around breast cancer. On The Habit Coach, Ashton talks about the negative impacts of physical inactivity and how squats can help boost your metabolism. On Heal and Hearty, Rashna along with Bhauna is joined by Deepak Khera. They discuss how one can prevent heart disease and reduce the risk of sudden cardiac arrest. And with that, let's get you on with your show.
0: Hi, Pranay. Welcome back to the Prakati Podcast. Hey, hi, Pawan. Good to be back here. Absolutely. And today is a slightly different episode. We are recording this on Zencaster, something that uh, all Puliabazi episodes are recorded on. So this is a little new for the Pragati podcast as well.
2: Yeah, home territory for me.
0: <laughs> so listeners, do give us feedback on how you think the audio quality was. We want to explore doing recordings with more guests who are based in various parts of the country. And sometimes we are not, we are not always in a position to fly out and record with them in a studio environment. So your feedback on how this episode sounds like at, you know, 1x, 1.5x, all of that will be immensely helpful. Pranay, today is a special episode on the Pragati podcast. And uh, it's something that is related to discussions we've had on the Pragati podcast before, which is about the role of India's states and the kind of importance they have and the kind of uh, importance that they should give themselves. Uh, Today, it's been... 63 years since the State Reorganization Act came into force and most modern states in India as we know it, um, you know, took their shape in one way or the other today. And there were many states, of course, which got further uh, split and uh, formed into states that exist in India uh, in their current form. So it's been 63 full years. And I mean, like, Karnataka, we celebrate it as rajyotsava Day, Kerala has Kerala Formation Day. And if you look at our state, you know, government, apart from the society, it's like a whole host of new institutions had to be created 63 years ago. Right. And they have determined where we are today across our states. So how do you think that journey has been across 63 years?
2: Yeah, it's it's one of those topics, right, Pawan? We are very interested in and about state governments in general. So it's good to just take a stock of some of these things. Uh, to start off with, I just wanted to make a, a couple of points. I, don't, I want to know what you think of these as well. One, I think... Uh, There are very few states over the last 63 years which have actually bucked the trend from the initial starting conditions. So basically states which were doing great at the time of say 1956 are still the states which are doing great now. Uh, And there are very few states which you can see that they had really good indicators, really poor indicators let's say at 1956 and have... Broken out from that uh, 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 significantly uh, differently, right? So you see, Kerala, Karnataka, all the states in the south, they were doing well even at that time. In fact, Ambedkar has written about it. Uh, he has a, uh, he has a, uh, a whole chapter on this about linguistic states, etc. And states, how South Indian states were doing much better back then as well. And that has still continued, right? Uh, A few exceptions would be, let's say, Punjab and Haryana where you would see uh, there has, uh with green revolution, there was a significant change in per capita incomes, and now you see that the per capita income difference between Haryana and Bihar is say five x. Right. You know? So that I think has continued. So that's not such a positive thing to say. Yeah. But on a more positive note, I think uh, one measure of fiscal federalism, and I think we discussed in general, you can call a decentralized system. Uh, federal, only if there is a measure of permanency in the assignments to these states. And I think that has sustained. So over the uh, 63 years, we now do recognize that states have a role of their own. We pretty much know that health is the responsibility of the state government's Police is the responsibility of the state government. So at least that there is a sort of permanency in assignments. Uh, so that uh, bodes good for the federal spirit of uh, India. That's
0: certainly true, Pranay. But I wonder how much of it was, you know, initial positions in the, in the 1950s sort of resulting in today. Because I'm not sure whether this was necessarily in the 50s or whether it was a little earlier. But at one point in India the region that makes up present-day Uttar Pradesh was considered one of the most developed in the country, right? I mean, uh, people talk about, Mm -hmm. if you at least take take a look at the last 75 years or so, between Uttar Pradesh and Madras, you actually see that Uttar Pradesh had high industrialization, you had places like the University of Allahabad. So uh, Uttar Pradesh was known as a center of higher education about, 60, 70 years ago. And the state of Madras for whatever it was as a presidency still had serious developmental challenges. And one of the things they say is that uh, since independence, the two states have flipped entirely in position. So, you know, maybe on certain things we have seen uh, more of the same and your initial position representing your uh, sort of your destiny as it were uh, today, political and economic. But maybe on certain counts, there has actually been genuine leadership at the state level to sort of, you know, change their own destinies. Mm. uh, But but I um, understand what you say, because even within a state like Karnataka, which was formed you know, on November 1, 1956, but got the name Karnataka much later in, I think, 1973 or so. uh, You look at what is called Hyderabad, Karnataka, which is Gulbarga, Bidar, perhaps Bijapur in the northern part. They were The least developed parts of the state when they joined the state from Hyderabad and they have survived today as some of the least developed districts in Karnataka. Right. right? So in that sense, there is a good question we should ask whether, you know, the formation of the state of Karnataka and these institutions, did they really help anyone with a, you know, weaker starting position? Mm. So in that sense, you know, maybe some of these institutions have not worked as well as they should have. but I think uh, the linguistic reorganization also had multiple motives behind it and I think it was beyond the simplistic idea that everyone who speaks one language should be in one state right mm. And uh, even if you look at 56 all the states got reformed, there are certain big states that got created much later. I think uh, the state of Bombay was there for much longer, which is a union of Gujarat and Maharashtra, speaking two very different languages. You had, I think, Punjab and Haryana and Himachal not quite taking their current shape. Uh, in the northeast, you had Manipur and I think Tripura as separate states, but Assam covering the rest of the northeast as one state. Right. So you had many many things um, even then, and slowly they 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 got changed.
2: Yeah, true. Bhavan, West, one more point. I absolutely agree when you said that some of the states were doing... Better on other indicators, for example, what you said about like UP was a hub for many of the smaller industries at some point of time, right? right? But, uh, on a GDP per capita basis, I think that difference has still survived because at back then also it was still a big, much populous place. Hmm. So if you just take the count as GDP per capita, the, they was, it was still less that time. The initial conditions represent the present conditions quite well
0: even today. True. But at the same time, you know, when we see where we are today, right, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the Haryana state GDP per person is about what, five times the uh, same for Bihar? Yes. Right. So you have that kind of a spread in state level inequality across Indian states today, but that disparity with certain take uh, states really taking off happens only in the last twenty five to thirty years, right? Post nineteen ninety one. So perhaps even if you know, certain things were going right for states like Tamil Nadu in the 80s and 70s. I think it's with uh, 1991 and liberalization that you see this spread really uh, increasing dramatically. Because even states perhaps that were performing better could not necessarily have very dramatically high economic growth. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Actually, I was looking up a few studies yesterday for this episode and I was there's a study by Arvind Virmani on uh, looking at the experience of state governments up to year 2000 so it doesn't cover it as an old study okay so if you see up till 2000 right there is there are similar trends the growth rates of uh, there's not much difference between let's say a growth rate of Karnataka and what you will see in UP of course it is starting from a much lower base of per capita incomes, but there's not much difference the real difference starts after that you know so then there is like one state growing at, say, 8% and then there are some states which are still growing at 2-3%. So you you can make that difference out quite
0: clearly. So in that sense, perhaps we can say that post-1991... Because of just opening up of the economy, things that states might have been doing right started showing results at a much larger scale, right? Because we have found even in our own study and in other studies that the biggest driver for the revenues of a certain state, the spending power, the capacity of a state is the state GDP, Right? I mean, nothing yeah. explains the state's ability to spend more on, say, health or education than the size of its GDP and the amount of taxes that can, that it can collect in its state, mm. right? So maybe in that sense, the 1991 process by accident sort of liberated the states in a certain way where they could at least start pursuing different economic trajectories because of various underlying reasons, right? So for example, Tamil Nadu already had good primary education and higher education in the eighties. And then, you know, that allowed Tamil Nadu to take off you know, once, you know, there was more freedom to build new industries, you know, build new um, companies and more of that. Absolutely. I think it gave them, it enabled them
2: to take a a few risks, do different things. And some states have clearly done better compared to the others. Right.
0: And, but, you know, one of the things, and I think we've, Uh, talked about this briefly in our fiscal federalism episode as well, uh, is that while states have grown so much in power, and we have seen over the last 20 years how powerful individual state chief ministers can be, you know, in certain ways, they can sometimes be more powerful than a prime minister within their domain, right? Because they have direct levers and controls over so many things. Uh, In spite of this, uh, states are not necessarily looking at themselves the way they ought to. And that, I think, is the core of our episode today, right? Given that it's been 63 years since the formation of many Indian states, 63 years since the States Reorganization Act, How should the states be looking at themselves and how should state governments be looking at themselves as a group of institutions and what kind of vision they need to have to really prosper in the coming, say, 20, 30 years? Mm-hmm. Right. Because uh, look at it today. I mean, Karnataka government has a budget of two lakh crores or more. Um The government of India spends only about 21,000 uh, rupees per person as of uh, the last budget. But the Karnataka budget is 35, 34,000 rupees. So mm-hmm. that's about a full, you know, 50, 60% larger. Mm-hmm. And if you go to states like Kerala and uh, Haryana, they almost touch 40,000 rupees. So you're almost looking at state governments having a power to spend up to double per person compared to the government of India. Mm -hmm. And states spend this on things that are more relevant to the daily lives of most of their citizens and residents, right? So apart from this just spending power, even constitutionally, they still have power over so many things that are relevant to our daily lives, to our careers work living and everything else so pranay uh, where do we start thinking about this from how should our states you know define themselves in the 21st century
2: yeah i think i have, I have divided this into two sections, like one, what states shouldn't be doing that they're already doing. And (laughs) then what are the new things that they're doing? Because the whole problem is that the states are doing a lot more compared to what their primary functions are, right? So fun thing, for example, like you mentioned, uh, a state's spending is supposed to be concentrated on things which uh, affect us on a daily basis more. right? So the constitutional assignment is such that most of the social infrastructure is supposed to be provided by the state. So, for example, health, education, public safety, all these are squarely in the domain of the state governments. Education was later made into a concurrent place subject, but primarily still the responsibility of the states, right? right? So, uh, first we should ask by doing how are the states doing on that count itself? So, uh, again, to look at it from another framework, the three functions from a fiscal angle that uh, states uh, that are provided in a federal system are redistribution of resources, allocation of public goods and third, macroeconomic stabilization. So on redistribution and macroeconomic stabilization, these are two functions generally across the world. The union government has a greater role to play because you want the same currency uh, across India, right? You don't want different uh, uh, different currencies that will have Absolutely. a lot of problems. And similarly, redistribution, if you have different redistributive things, then there will be some state governments which will uh, spend at the expense of non-residents and non localites So you don't, redistribution also becomes a Union government issue. So, the main role then is allocation of public goods, which is where we come to public health and, you know, primary education and maybe public safety kind of things. So, now let's ask this question. What have the states done on these three counts? And there, I think the record is still sketchy, right? So, you have, again, uh, like our studies On health had shown, for example, still states which are uh, doing great on per capita income basis are actually doing well on uh, uh, these indicators. And secondly, states which have actually decentralized a lot of these functions. So Karnataka and Kerala, for example, uh, on health. They have done much better in terms of health outcomes rather than the states that have concentrated these things to themselves.
0: Uh, True, absolutely. But even there, with maybe one or two exceptions, the performance has been lesser than satisfactory. Right, I um, mean, while there has been a difference between the states and a spread, and while still a state's GDP is still the best explainer for the quality of services on across many things, I don't know which way the causality runs there. So it's a little tricky. Um, it's it's uh, in many ways the states have not lived up to what their core role is, and which becomes sort of public good mm. provision. Right. So when it comes uh, from Within roads, starting from roads all the way to health and education, um, states have not necessarily done a good job. For example, with primary education, we are still struggling. Yes, the challenges have changed for the longest time, convincing all Indian adults that they should send their kids to full school education was a challenge that is no longer a thing today every parent at every income level realizes that you know they need to send their kids to school and which is why enrollment is no longer an issue in education whereas learning outcomes remain an issue and and similarly you see certain things reversing right i mean at say 50 60 years ago many of the universities and the state Run universities that existed in India were considered uh, quite good, mm. right? From you know Mysore University to Bangalore University to many others um, across the country. But unfortunately, I think, especially in the seventies, many of our universities fell victims to um, state level politics. Not just campus politics, which has its own role, but but somehow in the process. Our universities are no longer institutions of learning, but they became some something else entirely instead, mm-hmm. right? They, they became places where political patronage could be extended, where certain proxy battles of politics could take place. And it's very hard to name, you know, five or six state-run public universities in the country today that, you know, can be considered really top-notch. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. In fact, the trend is the opposite, right? Many of the good, uh, even the relatively better state universities are now become central university of
0: something. And yeah, the central universities are islands which perform a little better, but they are still different, right? Uh, Anything that is actually managed by a state government. So therefore the state government's role in higher education has been weaker. Mm. Uh, And I mean, I think we can, question quantity and quality, um, you know, significantly. And if if you look at uh, health and education and related things as some of the core services uh, offered by a state government, then, you know, we have to question the track record. Even though there has been significant improvements in a lot of things.
2: Yeah, I mean that's what the sign. There is significant difference also variance, but it depends on we can't make uh, for uh, you know our reference point can't just be that one state has done better than uh, a city in Uttar Pradesh or uh, compared to another state. We have to look at how has, for example, Karnataka done with respect to say Guangdong or let's say you know those. If we look. And with that as a comparison point, then on right. many of these things, health, education, public safety, especially because police oh, being the yeah. core role of uh, uh, protection of law and order is one of the core functions in the uh, of Indian state governments. We've done very badly on that. Count.
0: True. So um, Pranay, let's also talk about, so these are outcomes and various things, right? But there are also processes and institutions that give rise to these outcomes. So in that sense, when we look at processes and institutions, perhaps it's useful to also compare our state level institutions with our union level institutions, right? I Mm -hmm. mean, like, for example, we have a Lok Sabha, we also have, you know, state assemblies and we can compare their institutional strengths and processes reasonably well, right? And even if you look at line departments and so on, they're similar across these two levels. And over there, is it fair to say that states lag the institutional development of the government of India by, say, maybe a couple of decades? I'm saying this as, I mean, look at how... Like one one big point I see is that the government of India realized post-1991 that in many places where it was a direct player, you know, by running a public sector enterprise or something else, it realized that it had to take a step back. The private sector had become dominant. And what you needed were regulatory institutions. Mm. Now, the government of India has realized this. And we've seen certain institutions come up from... Try for telecom to uh sebi for securities to r b i has always been there uh other such things at the union level but we don't yet see the same at the state level. So maybe one way to think of it is states are just 20 years slower. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, actually so if you see at this you're talking about transition from being an operator to a regulator of sorts, right?
0: As one yeah. example, but the general idea being can we compare our state level institutions to our union government level institutions yeah. to see any developmental trajectory. Yeah, no, that
2: that is right. There is. So let's look at What are some of these institutional gaps, right? And differences. So one, uh, let's start with this executive role, right? And what you were talking about regulatory versus state. So one example that I can see is, for example, on the electricity front, Mm -hmm. we do have a regulatory authority in this at the state level, but still the player, the only player it is regulating and the only benefit is allowed is the state entity itself. True. Right. So there are, even when there are instances of a state level regulator coming up, the service delivery has not been liberalized enough. So still there is only one player and one controller. So that, yes. And uh, as you said, it's not so at the union level and that has changed. So that is definitely one institutional uh, shortcoming of the state government. This was the executive side, right? Now, talking about the legislative side, that is also an interesting uh, thing, Pavan. So, let me ask you this. What do you think? How many days does the state assembly
0: meet for in a year? Okay. Uh, (laughs) um, Let me say on average, maybe 60 days a year. 30 days a year. So, this is a study from PRS. Okay.
2: So, on an average, state assemblies meet 31 days a year. The number for the union government is around 70 and on the average. Okay. Okay. So, less than half the days that the parliament meets are state assemblies meet. And within the 31 days, more than 16, 17 days are spent on discussing the budget. (laughs) <laughs> okay. So, I mean, on an average, you have just 13 days being spent on a whole lot of things that state governments are supposed to do. I mean, just imagine health, education, public safety. These are the main things that state governments are supposed to provide. And they are spending just 13 days. And most of the discussions also, you know, on in the leg, state legislative assemblies happen only on the budget. So most of the bills just pass without discussion. Right. Uh, that is a worrying
0: trend. And in a sense, I mean, and we've written about budgets and state budgets quite a bit. We've talked about how more people should look at state budgets. But at the same time. A, an extended discussion for many days on just the budget is actually the least useful a way to spend yeah. legislative time, right? Because the budget is going to get passed anyway. And while yeah. it's good that there is discussion, the discussion cannot, cannot actually influence the outcome of the budget much, yeah. right? Yeah. Unless there is something glaringly horrible in the budget and the government tries to fix it later, mm. uh, right? Whereas if you actually deliberate over a piece of legislation, your outcome could be more fruitful, mm. right? Especially in states with, you know, an upper house and a lower house and so on. So states effectively have only 15 days of on average to pass all other legislations, right? Yes. Yes. And
2: uh, even within that, Bhavan, I was uh, looking up more things. So they have uh, departmental related standing committees within the state uh, legislative assemblies, right? Right. And many of those, uh, first of all, not many bills get referred to those, uh, as we said, uh, a lot of decisions get happened there itself. And even when the bills are referred to them, many of these standing committees have their, have the minister in charge of that particular department as one of the members of that committee. Wow. Now, that is not how it happens at the union government level, right? Mostly, when you have a departmental standing committee, the minister is not a part of right. it at all. So, you can actually, so if you look at, for example, the external affairs uh, standing committee reports at the union government level, they are very critical, very well analyzed and... Uh, and they will give really good recommendations, which may be directly uh, antagonistic to what the external affairs ministry might be saying. So uh, that happens often, but you won't see that at the state level because we have not, that institution is
0: still not uh, well designed yet. Yeah, I haven't come across, you know, Any academic work, any other work, whichever refers to the report by a state government standing committee on a certain matter, right? Whereas talk about defense, talk about health, talk about foreign affairs, anything, we all refer to standing committee reports to see to get a picture of what's going on because like you said if the minister is not in the equation the standing committee basically has the power to haul up various people in the executive and ask mm-hmm. critical questions of them and uh, they are uh, required to answer right and this is the, this is a form of parliamentary accountability and uh, we basically don't have effective assembly level accountability in our states right our uh, yes. uh, none of no one in the executive is truly accountable to any members of our legislature, whereas in a weird way, our members of legislature are extraordinarily powerful politicians because they exert other kinds of influence and control right which is perhaps more territory based rather than you know theme and legislature based yeah. So, so in that sense, so this is, this is good. So you have at least certain systems and processes, however flawed at the government of India level, which seem to be working, mm-hmm. right? I mean, even in the, at, uh, the Lok Sabha, we have a lot of problems because we are still passing a lot of bills without any discussion. There have been infamous days where, you know, there was one day, what, 17 bills were passed without, yeah. with a voice vote. Uh, so, so you have all of that there too, but it's, many times worse and even individual leaders from uh, say an MLA versus an MP and their role as a member of their parliament or assembly and their role in standing committees are widely different. So our legislative processes for bring, bringing in new laws are fairly flawed, right? Mm-hmm. At best we get some half decent laws and rules. If the ministry holds certain consultations with other stakeholders, right? So it happens largely outside of the legislative framework, unless something really, really blows up. Absolutely. Yeah. Like I remember in Karnataka when you had the doctor's agitation a couple of years ago, um, you, I mean, because the government of Karnataka was uh, introducing a fairly nasty piece of legislation, right? Regulating things, criminalizing, um, you know, various kinds of offenses by doctors, you know, if hospitals overcharge, all of that. So that there was an active uh, discussion in assembly and negotiations that were happening furiously with industry members and doctors outside of the assembly. But beyond that, it's very, very hard to find good instances like that that happen regularly. That's quite rare. right? So, So how else, Pranay? I mean, if you look at, so one of the things is, I think we need our... We've seen how powerful state leaders can be, but we need our states to project that leadership uh, much better in the coming decades, right? And this leadership does not mean that you have a uh, an investor's meet and basically you have your uh, top leadership hobnob with people from across the country and the world. Leadership goes far beyond that, right? So where would you say... The states need to t- start taking better leadership. Yeah,
2: I think one major point here is, uh, Pavanda, uh, all of this should start with financial resources, right? We want the state governments to do a lot of things, but then we have to look at the revenue side of things, right? Where is the money going to come from? And right. when whenever this, this this question is raised, a lot of times we blame the union governments, and rightly so, right? So, for example, we've discussed earlier that state governments spend around sixty percent. Uh, their revenue expenditure responsibilities amount to 60% of total government expenditure. But their revenue raising uh, is only around 36-37%. Which means the rest of the money is given as grants from the union government. So we adequately criticize the union government that, you know, do a lot more of uh, devolution of funds so that state governments are more capable. But one thing we also have to ask, what are the state governments doing on their own? to raise their own revenues. true, And that is where we'll see that, for example, one big thing that rests with the state governments is uh, taxation of agriculture, then charging for fees on a lot of these things, right? Fees, uh, levies on services used. And there we see, I mean, uh, the the entire Karnataka government, for example, our examples come from Karnataka because we've studied this, budgets of state uh, Karnataka government better. So right. the entire agricultural tax, it does exist as a line item in the budget is just a few crores, right? Like A few uh, crores or uh, a few lakhs
0: sometime you know? and I don't even know yeah. how they got that money.
2: Exactly, yeah. So that's such a small number. So we have to first ask that state governments need to do a lot more in improving their own fiscal situation apart from asking for more funds from the
0: union government. Right. And you know, um, I mean, I think we should discuss GST in this context, right? Because over the last few years, people have said that, look, a very important thing, which is sales tax. You've taken that power away from uh, state governments. And as a result, they actually have far less control today than they did earlier. So now basically states have control mm-hmm. over things like road taxes, maybe uh, uh, taxes on petrol and diesel and um, Alcohol. I mean, those being the big, big ticket items. But this is, we are only talking about where they have a direct lever on the rates. Beyond that, the more that you do things that favor economic development in your state, even your GST receipts will improve. Right, so it's not like you have lost mm. control. Uh, the especially the SDST uh, contributions to your states are a direct result of economic activity in your state, and they're from no yeah. other measure. And I think this is being missed out. Right, so in certain ways, there should be a stronger link between the economy uh, and uh, revenue generation today than before. Right
2: yeah absolutely and on GST like you rightly said it's the control over what gets taxed is different from the revenues that you get from that. Right. Tax, right? And GST can actually get them more revenues for the state government, which gives them freedom to do what they want with that money. right? So it's different uh, in this entire uh, very charged up debate of uh, fiscal federalism. Often we miss out on this fact that if state governments do earn more money and if it, even through GST or whatever, they will have the uh, freedom to use that money the way they want, which is what is
0: important. Right. And of course, uh, the other big thing that states have control over and they should not have control over is property taxes. Right. And India is pathetic at uh, collecting property taxes. Uh, Local government budgets are less than 1% of India's GDP, right? And that perhaps includes transfers from the state government. So uh, we are at a stage where this is something that cities should be empowered to collect. And um, Mm. right now, states draft the rules and nobody pretty much collects.
2: Yeah, I think this falls into that category of what are the things state governments do and shouldn't be doing. Right. <laughs> right. So first of all, in that category, the thing that falls is just the PSUs that state governments run. Okay. So I was looking up the CAG report, for example, and uh, Karnataka, for example, has 90 working public sector undertakings okay. and 12 non-working public sector undertakings. Now, this is not something which doesn't come in our debate at all, right? We always talk about, yeah, Uh, Sell away Air India, sell away all the union government enterprises, which we should. But what about the state government entities? Why do we have 90 public sector undertakings at the
0: state level? Yeah, why does the Mysore sandal soap factory still exist as a state-run enterprise in Karnataka, right? As much as, you know, sandal soaps and the brand is still there in many parts of the country, all of that, there's no reason why the government of Karnataka should be running it. And yeah. uh, government of Karnataka perhaps has entire ownership or a very high ownership in it, right? So uh, just like we said earlier, maybe there's a lag. Maybe, uh, you know, well, it's been what, 18 years or 19 years since Arun Shari. Coined the term disinvestment mm-hmm. and maybe now is the time that states start looking at divesting their shares in public sector enterprises much better and not sinking more money down. Uh, you know, into that drain. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this is one
2: part that states are doing and but shouldn't be doing, right? Right. And the second one, like you said, is the big chunk of it is just empowering the local government. Mm. So the third tier of government, right? I think that's where a lot of things need to be done. But these have been, uh, talked uh, of previously as well. Hmm. Uh So for example, property tax that you said uh, in fact in our uh, the constitutional amendment which actually led to the formation of these local governments, allows states the luxury to uh, give some of these taxation powers to the local governments. Right. That itself is like a bird defect, right? So a lot of state governments choose not to do this and uh, That makes state governments responsible for many of the local things uh, that they shouldn't be doing. And that's why we have things like our chief minister once talking about uh, flyover being built in Dotene
0: Kundi
2: in his budget
0: speech. <laughs> How does that happen? <laughs> yeah, so basically this there are certain things that even the mayor of a city should not be talking about but your local corporator should you know, like I think there's also okay. a speech mentioned about a swimming pool in the city of Udupi I think that founder mentioned okay. <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I mean like in Bangalore if you have a swimming pool that should be the responsibility of the local corporator and maybe the MLA at most right and they'll come and cut a ribbon and you know, open something. And this is being escalated. And this is we're talking about uh, an economy that is quite large, right? I mean we're talking about even a government budget which is like you know, multiple lakh crore rupees, and we are focusing on extremely trivial matters. So that is another thing that states are currently doing that they shouldn't be doing.
2: Yeah, I mean Karnataka's the size is six crores, right? That's our population, probably more than that, and uh, that's the size of many countries. True, right? You don't want uh, you don't want the leader of a country to be talking about uh, things like a flyover in a city.
0: Yeah, so in that sense, yeah. if especially if you're looking at a 20 to 30 year time frame, and we're looking at India, perhaps, I don't know, hopefully quadrupling um, uh, its income or more. Uh, we are really looking at Indian States, both in population size and in economic size, get to a place where maybe they are like European States from 40 years ago or 30 years ago. Right. And, and eventually we'll get there to, I mean, if you look at the European Union and Indian Union, there are striking parallels and contrasts. And initially you mentioned about, you know, uh, macroeconomic stability being one goal, you know public service provision being another goal, the European Union is a grand experiment to solve that in a fundamentally different manner, right? Where they tried to get macroeconomic stability later by introducing a common currency, whereas India is something which has stayed as a union from the get-go with one state and one government. But now it has to figure out how to let go of control. States have to figure out how to let go of control I think of themselves as mini nation states, Right.
2: So actually, Pavan, I have a conceptual difference here. I want to discuss that with you. My idea of state governments is for them to be laboratories to try out different things. They'll be some of them will try out weird things, but the idea is let them be the laboratories to try out different things and fail fast uh, if they have if things don't work, rather than them being trying at a big level. Right. So that you can achieve this objective state through two. Uh, different ways okay? okay so one is yes the state government stay what they are and they let go of a lot of powers to the local government so then you have a lot of more experimentation happening at a city level and at a village panchayat level and then we learn and move on if things work we copy from to other places etc so that's one idea right that's the more deepening of decentralization and uh, federalization so sort of. right. that's one model the second model is why don't we have many more states itself? So, uh, like we discussed, right? Our state governments are so huge. Some of these state governments qualify to be uh, uh, countries in their own right. And is that a scale for them to be able to try and try different things? I don't think so, right? In some of these, in like Uttar Pradesh, such a big state, right? Maybe the fifth or sixth biggest country if it were on its own. So how does, uh, and the main idea of federalism was to be able to take advantage of the magnitude and littleness of nations. True. So that littleness part doesn't exist at the current level itself. So maybe why not have 70 or 80 states? To for them to be enabled to have laboratories which can try different things and uh, try experiments. What do you think of these two different paths?
0: So... I don't know if the primary purpose of a state or any region is to conduct experiments at various levels, right? Mm-hmm. So the mm-hmm. that is a process by which maybe you will discover the right answer or better answers to how you can you know fix your education, fix you know improve healthcare institutions, all of that. But the experiment is not the end in itself. Absolutely, right? the the end is you know development, prosperity, and uh, a good life and livelihood for all of your residents. So. To that end, the one big drawback of having more states is that collective or their individual bargaining power with the government of India will be reduced. And at a Mm -hmm. time where fiscal federalism and whatever, federalism is still under contest, maybe you are weakening the states, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, And this is an argument that I'm sure you would have heard um, enough before. And I think both are actually options that, people in every state ought to choose for themselves. There, I think there are certain times in which there might be a certain region in a state which might have a very different trajectory from the rest of the state, right? I mean, you look at, uh, you know, the erstwhile Uttaranchal part of Uttar Pradesh and how it became Uttarakhand later, You could make the argument that Uttarakhand sort of had its own cultural norms, its own sort of mountain challenges, its own ecosystem, its own everything. And it seems to be doing better as an independent state, right? So to me, I think these are two paths that are available sometimes. And sometimes this is because of the goal of development in mind sometimes the reasons of political and you know representational in nature so i don't think there is a set solution between the two i think no matter what whether we split up states or whether we have lots of states we still need decentralization so that problems can be solved effectively locally right mm-hmm. not so that there is necessarily um, competition and uh, experimentation. Yeah. You just want a locally relevant solution to apply to a local problem. I don't remember who gave this example first, but uh, I think it was uh, Jai Prakash Narayan on the Pragati podcast. If your lift in your apartment is broken, you don't want to call up the chief minister to come and fix your lift, right? Mm-hmm. You want to call somebody in your apartment association and you want to get the problem solved within the locality rather than go anywhere outside of it. Mm-hmm. And maybe your lift system is different. Somebody else's apartment lift system is different. Maybe the problems are similar. Maybe you can learn from each other or maybe you can't and you need locally relevant solutions, right? So I think, uh you know, this, this either or between more states and more decentralizations may be a, uh, flawed one, but but what do you think? Uh,
2: I, I agree.
0: I think both of them uh, they are not mutually
2: exclusive. Absolutely, so far, absolutely. Right? They, you need uh, both of them. Uh, but one thing is the point that I want to make is that it's the we shouldn't think of our state governments as in uh, that there's some permanency or something which is uh, divinely ordained to the current boundaries of the state government. Right. So it's okay, you can have different, more states and yet uh, what matters as you said is the developmental path that we uh, ultimately reach. Right? So it's not uh, that we need to have one, only one uh, state of Marathi speaking people for right. instance or only one state for uh, a particular culture. So, because a a lot of times I see a state government uh, objective often becomes this idea of protection of a particular culture, language or religion or whatever, God knows what, right? But is that the goal of the state governments? I don't think so, right? right? So, uh, you could have, and this is where I sort of, uh, go towards what Ambedkar had written that it's not necessarily that, you know, one state, that uh, like one language, one state should be the goal. You could have, one state should have one language. That is fine. Mm-hmm. But one language needed, can have many states, right? You could have many states and each of them trying different things uh, to ultimately uh, reach that developmental goal. That
0: Right, be. right. So Praday, I think we've... Um, uh, you know, talked at length about various things, uh, but maybe uh, let's maybe talk about certain specifics that you would want uh, in to see um, mm-hmm. change in the next twenty, thirty years, right? So, if if Indian states, if their goal is therefore to deliver prosperity and a good life to all of its residents. Uh, what are the things that they ought to be doing now or in the near future such that they can do this effectively over the next 20, 30 years, right? Right. To me, the first one that starts is maybe 63 years ago, this idea of one language and one state made a lot of sense, right? Because the idea was that if people are speaking the same language, perhaps you can deliver services, form a government and administer that area much better right? and more cohesively. And maybe one thing is while that remains to be true, Uh, We are also seeing uh, urban growth, especially metropolitan growth being driven by migration, Mm -hmm. right? So you need either at the state level or or at a city level, the acknowledgement that as states develop, they automatically become multilingual, Mm -hmm. right? Even though there might be one dominant language that... uh, that is still the lingua franca of that place, yeah. which is perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, like um, uh, with the recently re- uh, released migration data, we found that in Bangalore there were uh, more than ten thousand resident uh, migrants from each of nineteen different states. Wow! Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so in that sense, and there were many states and only 68% of the migrants to Bangalore were from Karnataka. Mm-hmm. It is still the dominant majority, but a full 32% came from Andhra Pradesh, Tamil Nadu, Maharashtra, Telangana, you know, Manipur, Assam, West Bengal, so many places. And this is a wonderful thing because the freedom of movement in India is perhaps one of the biggest drivers of uh, individual prosperity, right? I mean, you move... Moving from somewhere to a large city means that if not in your generation, in your in your children's generation, you have escaped poverty and perhaps entered the middle class, right? So, so in that sense, while there was this linguistic uh, formation of states, I think now while we keep that language, we also have to think beyond language uh, on this. So that's hmm. where I'd want to start. Uh, where would you start? Yeah, I think one related
2: point to that is just this idea of embracing cities Mm -hmm. is important, right? Because a lot of think time still uh, at the union and at the state level, we again associate a lot of things to rural India. And then the cities are these ugly things which come up that kind of a mindset needs to go away. So yeah, creation of new cities, is important as uh, like a lot of our states still have like one primate city, right? One city, which is just, and that is a big problem. So we need a lot more states uh, like Tamil Nadu has done, right? Where there are, People where there are much a large number of smaller cities, also apart from its capital, which and they all have their comparative advantages. So, Coimbatore is doing something on the manufacturing front, and then you have uh, cities down south, further down south, which are doing something on, uh, say, electronics manufacturing and right. things like that, right? So, that uh, idea of embracing cities and cities being important to the growth of the state and hence migration also being important is something that needs to absolutely. be absolutely
0: uh, the second thing uh, from from my side would be uh, what we briefly mentioned earlier institutions right i think state governments we look mm-hmm. at the transport department of every any state uh, the transport department uh, manages the rto uh issues driving licenses, they issue licenses to bus companies, any private transport uh, in the city, and they run public transport. Even if sometimes the public transport is formed as a company, right? Sometimes it's even departmental, right? The department runs buses in, say, Bangalore, you will have the Bangalore metropolitan, whatever, the bus company which uh, delivers uh, mm-hmm. transport. And this is ridiculous, right? I mean, this is conflict of interest uh, 101, where the government is a player and an umpire. And and
2: and it also bans others from running. Yeah, player, so.
0: ban, umpire, <laughs> decides who all the players are, kick people out, does everything, right? They probably even play the entire game and leave everyone out. Uh, so th- this is untenable, right? Especially for any modern economy. We've, again, seen this realization 20 years ago in the government of India. We have not seen this realization here at all. And I don't think we can see a real development over the next 20 years if we don't start having I mean recently we do have a real estate regulator we need to see how that real estate regulator is empowered and actually works at the state level right because land is still hmm. by and large a state subject similarly we probably need healthcare uh, regulators in the state health department has some things most of our uh, healthcare is private anyway uh, we need we've always had sort of school boards so we've Done that regulation a little better, but we need to be thinking about this in transport in power in in every single perhaps even water we don 't we don 't think of we have water utilities, but we don 't have water regulatory authorities, so I think mm. that institutional development will be critical to scaling many things. And we have seen that conflict over the last few years, right? The rise of Uber and Ola was a gigantic conflict for transport departments because they didn't know how to deal with it. Uh, So, so that to me is one other thing that I think is very important for the next 20, 30 years.
2: Yeah, a a few more institutions, like we already discussed about legislatures and uh, PSUs and raising money through their own revenue sources. Apart from that one institutional gap that I see is just how state state finance commissions are working. So when the state finance commissions currently, unlike the union finance commission, which now uh, is well recognized as an entity, as an arbiter, which does a objective job of sharing resources between union and state governments. Right. Similarly, all state governments are supposed to have state finance commissions as well, which currently don't work at all. Right. So, that is one another institutional thing which needs a revamp. And if that doesn't happen, then we can't achieve this idea of the union uh, local governments being able to do more things. being Because there's no permanency in assignments. Like we discuss what federalism means. There is absolutely no permanency in assignments to local government. So if you have this state finance commission, there will be some permanency, some uh, measure of what is a good amount of resource that needs
0: to be transferred to local governments. So that will evolve. Right. And in that sense, I mean, we see again leadership at the state level, which even sparked this entire debate, right? Karnataka attempted decentralization in the 80s, well before the government of India woke up to it. And we have lost the plot since then. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think it's time that states say that, hey, uh, the law might say whatever it does, the constitution might say whatever it does, we will respect it but we can also go beyond it, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, On a lot of these kinds of things where reforms might hurt the direct patronage power of a state, states have been often reluctant and the model that people want to follow is that the government of India will pass a model piece of legislation and this would be well drafted and will meet all the needs and states will then adopt this and execute this so that you know the states improve and that has not worked very well right take a simple things like uh, agricultural markets apmc reform the model act is from 2003 the model act really didn't do much but the few states i mean karnataka took a little bit of leadership where they've actually gone beyond the model act of 2003 to look at internet linked markets, which was not even an idea in 2003. So I think we need genuine state level leadership at a much larger thinking level than just something like this.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And even in terms of uh, their own uh, ideas on even uh, their own projects, right? So for example, We talk about NREGS, which has now been accepted by both Congress and BJP governments. We might not, we might agree or disagree with that idea itself, but it is now a well accepted thing at the union level, And but it was a state government thing to start off with, right? First, Maharashtra tied it way back in the 1970s. Right. So, we need states to be able to do many of these things and... Uh, that needs to be enabled. Which means states need to get let go of
0: certain things so that they can tra- invest time and
2: effort and energy
0: in doing other things. Yeah, it's sad right now that all the government of India centrally sponsored schemes, even after they got defunded or, you know, reductions in funding, the state governments are happy to keep supporting those rather than create new schemes of their own, right? We have not seen any grand new schemes on health or education in the last five years, even though there was an opportunity for most states to come up with one. That I agree. Uh, One more thing talking about what, where
2: states can go above and beyond what... Uh, in their thinking is about the state role in foreign policy and security in general. So for example, this is one idea I've been uh, and we've written about it as well you and I so this idea that state governments uh, have become key players in economic diplomacy of India mm-hmm. right? so you already have state CMs every year at least they do one song and dance show across the world where they will go for one day yeah. at least and go and talk about uh, come and invest in our state it has these advantages and all that so now we need to take that to the next level where states should need to have permanent, credible presence in top countries across the world uh, where, so that they can invite investments into their own state. So a, an interesting example of this is how Australia crafted this India 25 thir- 2035 strategy document. Okay, mm-hmm. And in that document, they have identified ten Indian states that they should concentrate on and what are the advantages of these 10 states and where uh, Australian companies can invest
0: in. Uh, wow. We haven't done that ourselves. Right? <laughs> True. And absolutely, yeah. if the state of Kansas in the United States can have a trade representative who sits in Bangalore, why aren't we having, you know, state uh, representatives, you know, people who can act on our behalf, who can um, make connections, build networks, who can promote both, right? We want investment in our states. We want... Indian states and companies to have access to markets abroad. And we we have a Bangalore-based company which is operating in pretty much every state in the continental United States, right? I mean, like, so you we, we really need some sort of a government link which goes beyond what the government of India is trying to do. And it it need not be in conflict with what the government of India does either. Exactly,
2: it could in fact it could be work something like say Karnataka can fund a chair in the embassy of uh, uh, let's say our embassy in Washington DC. So it is still run by the union government, but there is some chair that Karnataka funds, which is only working for investment within Karnataka. Right. So it's over and above what the union government is doing. It is also. In consonance with what the union government is doing. So, there can, I'm sure there are much more imaginative ways to do it, but it is one way of thinking that state governments, given that they are already a player in economic diplomacy, they can go above and beyond
0: what they are doing currently. Absolutely. And there is also a theme to this, right, Pranay? This is like, what the government of India actually does right now, uh, there are a whole bunch of, you know, uh, subject lists according to the constitution saying these are things that government of India should do. These are things that the state should do. And the government of India goes, yeah, yeah, I'll do whatever is supposed to be mine. And I'll also do everything else that I want to. Right? (laughs) I'll do some health stuff. I'll do some education stuff. I'll do whatever else.
2: And... uh,
0: Maybe in a certain sense, it's that irreverence, right? A healthy irreverence to say states Mm. will, yeah, yeah, these are my list subjects, but I will do extra wherever I want to. One of them being foreign policy. Mm. And I think the same can be extended to other fields, right? Why aren't state governments Mm. investing in research and development today at all? Mm. Uh, Yes, something like research, which needs large funds, which needs whatever. I mean, you can argue that, you know, there is a... Greater role for a national government to play in R&D, but the role that states play in R&D cannot be zero, Mm. right? And you should not have a constitutional subject list in order to get a government to spend money on research, Mm. right? Because the constitutional provision will not help much in any way, right? If someone doesn't want to Fund on uh, spend money on research, so I think that's also been one reason perhaps a lot of state universities got gutted mm-hmm. because no researcher could survive on state government funds and do research apart from teaching and you know other professorial duties so I think that general idea of going beyond their mandate mm-hmm. in a healthy way is not a bad idea and perhaps a necessary idea for the next 20 years for Indian states.
2: Yeah, and that's where I meant by experimentation, right? Like uh, a few states, this is this can't be done by all states. So let a few states try this and then... Uh, we will know whether it actually contributes to the developmental path also or not, and then other states will learn. A union government will also learn from it. Uh, but of course, this needs to happen only after one state governments let go of the things that they shouldn't be doing in the first place. Absolutely, uh, like local governance, etc. And yeah, so that is a necessary precondition. Otherwise, they yeah, not do the things that they are supposed to be doing, which is health, uh, public safety, police and then
0: they start doing local governments thing on one side of the things <laughs> and so union governments think on the other end. That's true. Yeah. That's true. I mean, I mean, they need to still maintain their core. So any other final thoughts, Pranay, on what else you think states should really think about? Uh, maybe let me put it this way. Uh, we largely talk about what state governments ought to be doing and not doing, right? How should our society be thinking about states, right? Like if we are residents of Bangalore or Karnataka or Maharashtra, what should we expect from our state governments?
2: Yeah, that's. I, I think that again, we can expect from state governments from given what the constitutional morality mm-hmm. is. And from that angle, I think we should expect social infrastructure uh, to be provided by the states, right? So health, education and public safety. I think that are the core things we should concentrate and always ask whether the state governments are providing those things to us or not.
0: True. And and so one way is if we're talking about unorganized society, right? So we're not talking about nonprofits, think tanks, Mm -hmm. all of that, general society. There are certain questions I feel like we're still not asking our state leadership, right? For example, we've Mm -hmm. now rightfully been demanding of the government of India that where are the jobs, right? What are the policies? First, show me how many jobs are being created and tell us how you're going to solve this problem. Why aren't we asking any state leadership to fix this jobs challenge? Mm, right, yeah. I'm not excusing mm. the government of India. I think I hope yeah. hold them culpable for a lot of this. But mm. I'm sure the policy levers that are available with, let's say the government of Karnataka or the government of Tamil Nadu are significant when it comes to job creation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. right they have control over land they can have control over certain labor policies although that's contested they have control over many other things they have control over service provision mm-hmm. right which has a huge relationship with you know the development of industries and the private economy and everything uh, so why aren't we asking our state leaders why jobs are not being created mm-hmm. why aren't we doing studies at the state level on how many jobs are being created mm-hmm. right uh, especially if you say that you know the ruling party in the center does not want this data. Why isn't there an opposition party which is in power elsewhere which is doing you know robust studies in their own area right these are things that somehow are escaping our imagination entirely
2: Yeah, Pavan. actually right. if you see the second generation of reforms which we talk about right? land, labor and all right. those fall squarely in the state government domain isn't it So yeah. and a lot of role has to come from the state governments and remember this Rajasthan had tried something with the labor law reforms a few years back and that just frittered Way right now we no longer hear state governments taking leadership on that. In fact, we are seeing state governments go the other way. Like now, Andhra Pradesh, uh, there were talks about uh, introducing local reservation in private sector in Andhra Pradesh. So wow. we are going the other way,
0: right? So that's quite worrying, actually. So one, as a general society, I think we need to ask better questions of uh, the state leadership uh, and the state government. And even in an organized manner, we need to have more of that focus on states, right? I mean, we've talked mm-hmm. about this before. We need more think tanks that just work at a state level and think about a state level. We have enough and more which look at foreign policy and others, right? And mm-hmm. I'm sure we need more, we need better and all of that. But we just don't have enough institutions that say, uh, you know, orissa based institutions that look at Orissa's development. We have a few, mm. but we need a lot more think tanks which are able to crunch budget numbers, do various kinds of analyses, give inputs, critique, challenge, right? And uh, the good news is we have a local language media which is very solid in all our states, which mm. do hold the governments accountable to a certain extent, even if, the media might be compromised in certain uh, aspects as there are often uh, pressures. But I think we need a lot more people who keep their sort of guns trained on the state governments and ensure that they're doing reforms, doing new things and ensuring that, you know, there is a real progress and development in their state.
2: Yeah. And one question I would uh, want people and the society to us of the state, uh, in addition to what you said, is just a sort of a liberalization and a, uh, index of sorts, right? What are the things that state governments are letting go of as well? Yeah. Keep asking that
0: question. Yeah. Did well. you decentralize? Yeah. Did you disinvest and privatize? You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> did you yeah. do uh, X, Y, and Z? And I think, you know, I think we should also come to a place where we almost have a checklist manifesto for at least the 10 most... Uh, 10 richer states in the country, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe we need, we, I think we should have a separate discussion on how we should be thinking about all the other states, right? Which are still financially and otherwise handicapped, which still have serious institutional capacity concerns. And, you know, if these 10 top states do uh, even a fraction of the things that we discussed, the divergence will only increase right between how they are performing and how other states are performing so i think that's a discussion for another day but uh, pranay thank you so much i think we went on for a little longer than we intended to uh, but i hope uh, listeners find this uh, useful or interesting uh, but i think we really need to just ask bigger questions and have bigger asks from our state government. And Pranit, thank you so much for coming on the Pragati podcast to have this discussion with me. Thanks, Pavan. Thank you for staying with us till the end. If you have any questions or comments, do write in to podcast at thinkpragati.com. And hey, if you like the podcast and listen to us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and a review. It will mean a lot to us. The Pragati Podcast is available on the IVM Podcast app and pretty much every other podcast app and platform. We are there everywhere. Advertising is dead Yep, you heard me right Advertising is dead We're all in the content business now Let's not call it news, TV, radio, etc, etc It's all content And we're in the middle of this weirdly exciting phase Where all the borders and lines that have been drawn over decades Has been swept away by this lovely thing called the internet We're a show where we don't dwell on just the stuff that is now But rather the wider stuff about advertising, media, content And the whole goddamn circus surrounding it Tune in every Tuesday for our weekly unboxing of the mystery box we used to call advertising. I'm Varun Dugirala, co-founder and content chief at The Glitch. And this is my new podcast, Advertising is Dead. Janice, what do you think couples did before TV
2: was invented? I don't know, go for walks on the beach, long drives, fancy dinners, have more sex maybe? But what did we do when we decided to move in together? We debated between the Chromecast and the Fire Stick. We gave up on sleeping early so we could stay up watching true crime shows. We got ourselves three cat babies. And basically became the cutest couch potatoes around. Okay then. <laughs> In case you guys still haven't got it, we are a TV crazy, Netflix loving, binge watching Mr. and Mrs. I'm Ani Ritkuha. I'm Janice Iquera. And if like us, you snort TV for breakfast, lunch and dinner, this is the podcast for you. Tune in every Thursday on the IVM podcast app or wherever it is that you get your podcast from. This is Mr. and Mrs. Binge Watch. Watch.